1: Hello and welcome to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy. The job of a parent in most rich countries used to be fairly straightforward, to keep their child housed and healthy and secure them enough education to become independent as soon as possible. Well, no longer. Parents on both sides of the Atlantic are spending more time and money than ever on something called parenting. The word has only existed since the 1950s, but it now resembles an increasingly competitive sport. Parents are shuttling offspring between a mind-boggling range of extracurricular activities. They're trying to mould their children into near-perfect adult humans, a dead cert to attain personal and professional success. But is it working and is it worth it? So this week we're asking, how pushy should parents be? I'm joined in the studio by Barbara Beck, the author of this week's special report on the changing nature of childhood. Welcome, Barbara. Thank you. And on the line from Washington, D.C. is Ryan Arvent, our Free Exchange columnist, who's been looking into the economics of parenting. Hello there, Ryan. Hello, Anne. So let's start with how childhood has changed. Barbara, since you were young, what would be the differences that you observe yourself?
2: Yes, it's not just since I was young, but from all the contacts I've had, all the conversations I've had, it's for anybody under 30. Childhood used to be a very different proposition from what it is now. Until quite recently, children used to range free. They used to be allowed out into the street. What we see now is completely different in that children get ferried everywhere. There are dangers perceived either from traffic or from potential kidnappers. And also parents seem to have a much more difficult job trying to prep them for future success.
1: And many parents look back on their own youth with nostalgia, but what are the benefits of a modern childhood that you found as you went along?
2: Well, interestingly enough, the children themselves seem to be quite enjoying it. Uh, There may be all sorts of reasons for it. I mean, children are still being better nourished, better looked after, better education, there's a bit more money around in most cases, so maybe they've got nothing to complain about. And they and
1: don't feel this sense of constraint that you lay out about being more trammelled in how they roam around or whether they're allowed to be out on their bikes after six o'clock?
2: Well, they don't know anything different, do they? It's they marvellous thing about children. never range free, so, and children are incredibly adaptable, otherwise the human race wouldn't exist anymore.
1: So if we look at a university-educated mother in America, she can now expect to spend 22 hours a week parenting. I'm certainly not going to compete with her. But anyway, when that's about double the figure from 1980. What do you think about the trend towards spending more time, more effort as well on, on offspring, especially given that parents are not spending any less time at work? Barbara, and then I'll bring in Brian as our
2: economics guru. Well, it's very tough on parents, actually, because the only reason this is possible at all is because families have become smaller. I mean, on average, a a woman in a rich country now has 1.7 children, however odd that may seem. In other words, it's not even two, it's not even enough to replace the pair that produced the children. So it is possible to lavish a lot more time and effort on what few or single children there are, and that is what's happening so although women now typically go out to work, and particularly uh, educated, middle-class, professional women probably work very hard at quite important jobs, they also take it upon themselves to work in the second job of promoting their children. And this is happening in most rich countries, not so much in the Scandinavian countries, i, I found. But it, it certainly happens in Britain it happens in America and i found very much in, it happens in China i also went to south korea and it's it's tremendous there yes
1: Ryan active economics writer active dad we're talking there about mothers but does the same go for fathers can you unpack that a bit for us from your work
0: Certainly well as you've said the time spent by mothers on parenting has almost doubled you know over the past few decades the time spent by fathers has also gone up quite a lot but remains uh, substantially behind that spent by mothers. So the dads are more involved, still leaving more of the tasks to women. But it, it's really the phenomenon of increased time spent with children is really interesting given what we've seen on the working side. Richer families especially are working considerably longer hours than they were 30 years ago. And you, you might have thought that the extra money they're earning from that would be um, used to pay for, for nannies and all sorts of other people to take care of the children. But instead, they're managing to find even more time to devote to the little ones.
1: And is that simply that they work longer days or is it possible? that we're doing two things at once much more. And I'm now going to just bring in a bit of personal anecdotage there. I mean, having worked all through having three children as a political journalist out and about you know, election campaigns when they were a week old, I think what I did was I, I just did two things at once, possibly uh, making sure that neither of them was done absolutely correctly, but, but I did it. Is that a trend or is that just a disposition of certain kinds uh, of driven parent or driven professional no, I
0: think that's certainly going on. I mean, people are, are much more connected now than they used to be. They have their phones with them all the time, so you can, you know, be spending time working on homework with your child, uh, and at the same time sending emails back to the office. Uh, you know, if you live in sort of a posh neighborhood filled with professionals, you might be on the sidelines at your child's sporting practice, uh, and at the same time networking with your neighbors who also happen to be, you know, in your line of work. So I think there's a lot of kind of double duty there. But I also, or think- indeed,
1: sitting on your mobile phone in the playground, which is something that one notices in other people often faintly disapprovingly and then realises, <laughs> of course, you're, I'm sure you've never been there, Ryan. Right? Oh, never, no. What about those differences between countries? Barbara Beck, you're German by background, you're working out of London and you've been looking at rich world countries and China. When you say there's a trend across the world, perhaps with the, the Scandies being a, a bit a bit aside, do they do the parenting or even the pushy parenting in different ways?
2: I don't think it's all that different, although I think in, in Southeast Asia, there's probably more emphasis on academic achievement. So, for instance, in South Korea, lots and lots of children who are already very bright are sent to private crammers and may spend many hours a day at these private crammers in addition to school. So they, they probably miss out on quite a lot of sleep. They certainly miss out on quite a lot of play. To a less extent, that happens in China as well. In America, I think there's, Perhaps more emphasis on the child having fun and receiving a certain social polish, interfacing with other children, acquiring different skills, perhaps more sport. So there's more emphasis on the child actually enjoying that. But the background is always the same. I mean, everywhere around the world, the emphasis now on education. In America, if you don't have a college degree, you're nowhere. You're not going to get any decent sort of job. I think the same sort of thinking is available in Southeast Asia. If you don't pass the all-important gaokao in China, for instance, the entrance exam for university, you can forget it. So that is what all these parents are beginning to bear in mind quite early on, even when children are at primary school or even at preschool Uh, You want to get the child into the right preschool so that it's prepared for the right primary school and so on until you get into university and you get a good degree and then you get a decent job.
1: You're on an escalator, really, aren't you, from your baby grow years. Ryan, are we reading the economics of this right? Is that rewarded, as Barbara suggests, parents if they're well educated themselves, get very into the idea that education is this great ladder of social mobility and success for their children. But might we be wrong?
0: No, I think Barbara has it right. I think one thing we've seen over the past 30 to 40 years is a huge increase in the return to a college degree or to an advanced degree. Meanwhile, people with lower levels of education have seen their income stagnate. And so it's become much more important to get that higher education. At the same time, admission into the top schools has become much, much more competitive. So around the time I was applying to go to college back in the 1990s, Ivy League schools uh, in America would admit a quarter or more of applicants. That's fallen now down to single digits, to around 5% or so for a school like Harvard. And so it's much more important to get into those top schools, at least in terms of your earning potential, it's also much more difficult. And so I think that's a it's something that economists here have dubbed the rug rat race, that you've, if you don't start from the beginning and really put everything into it, your children are, are going to be left behind.
1: So how early should parents start on that rugrat rat race? The brain is at its most plastic from birth to the age of about five. Barbara, can institutional early education level the playing field for poorer children, those whose parents are not able to give them that intellectual silver spoon start in life?
2: To some extent, I think it can and I think it should because one of the problems about this very competitive, very intensive parenting is that it opens up a gap between the already privileged and the less privileged groups. And if you don't have very much money, you probably can't do all the kinds of things that well-off parents can do for their children, and you rely more on institutional care. And I think a lot of governments have now realised that and are opening up earlier childcare and appropriate a sort of preschooling for children in in order to make up for the sort of things that children in less advantaged backgrounds don't get. I mean, middle-class parents will talk to their children from an early age. They will take them into interesting environments. They will have uh, meals with them and chat about things. These sort of things are less readily available in less advantaged families because the parents simply don't have time. They don't have money for the kinds of excursions. So it's very important to make up these differences. And it is interesting to find that in most countries, a larger portion of the age group from about three to school beginning are now in early education, and it does make a difference. In America particularly, there are plenty of examples to show that that investment pays off.
1: I know you you cite Barbara, the Nobel Prize-winning economist James Heckman, who argues that it does make a difference. But Ryan, what do we know about how that works out over time? It could be, of course, that there's a cognitive bias that guilty liberals just like this kind of thing anyway. I mean, they would do it whether it worked or not, because it also covers their own moral choices. Do we know enough about what comes out at the other end of that kind of intervention?
0: Well, we don't know enough. I mean, I think there, uh, the, the evidence that we're gathering is is improving, um, but it's hard to extrapolate out from sort of small-scale programs and then programs tried at state level. The characteristics vary state by state, and so it can be tricky to draw broad lessons. But I think it, it does seem clear, as Barbara said, that there are big advantages enjoyed by privileged children just based on the interactions they get with their parents that more disadvantaged children don't necessarily get. And it does seem that there is, is a return to young children from state interventions. I I think one thing that's interesting is that it's not always something that's going to show up in terms of test scores that you see in terms of academics, early interventions, the effects sometimes fade away. But in terms of social factors, like the ability to be disciplined, to plan things over a longer run, to interact with others, to avoid bad behavior, those sorts of things seem to persist a bit longer.
1: How much do we think pushy parenting can harm as well as do good? As some people make the link between high dependence on parents and increased anxiety or a lack of grit. And I think that can often lead, Barbara, to a kind of double guilt on the parents. I wake up some mornings thinking I must chase my children's college applications, and other mornings thinking it really should be down to them. Does the evidence tell me whether I should be more laid back or more pushy?
2: Well, on the whole, the evidence shows that these pushy parent techniques seem to work, that the child will have better academic results it will get further in life. It will have the social polish that is required for the top jobs. So I think that the parents are probably quite justified in pursuing these. You also need to remember that it's a competitive game in that most parents compare themselves with other parents. They know parents like them and they see that everybody's doing it. And even if their children are bright and doing quite well, they think that Because the game is so competitive, they have to get their children to do more. So nobody can really drop out of this race. And as we were saying earlier, the children themselves seem reasonably happy about it. I mean, I've heard one or two anecdotes of particularly students in South Korea who were so pushed and pushed that when they'd finally got their university degrees, they said, Right, I'm not going to do anything else. I'm going to go home and stay with my parents and play lots of video games and not get a job. Thank you very much. I've done it, basically. Mm -hmm. I've I've, I've I've done my bit bit of achieving. I'm not going to do any more.
1: Many of us parents will have our head in our hands at that thought. Ryan, do you recognise that picture of pushy parenting also being a bit tough on parents psychologically, something we don't tend to measure so much? But as we talk about mental health much more, much more openly mental health in the workplace, mental health in families and, and addressing it, are we in danger of driving ourselves into a bit of a trap?
0: Well, I think we certainly are. A lot of this is, as Barbara says, motivated by an almost constant sense of guilt that you're not doing enough relative to everyone else. And no one wants to feel that they've let their their child down. And so there's that sort of constant anxiety that a lot of parents feel. Uh, and then there's also just the sort of, you know, there are only so many hours in a day. And uh, it would be nice to to take some time as a parent working on their own happiness and fulfillment and mental health. Not that interacting with children isn't rewarding. In, in many cases, it is. But you can easily work yourself too much. And so I think that there are mental health costs in that sense. I also probably feel a little more ambivalent about the effects on, on the children over the long run. I suspect the children don't mind it so much. Uh, when they're young. But I I worry that this sort of parenting teaches kids that life is a race and it's one that can be won. And of course, life isn't. And you sort of eventually have to find your own sense of happiness and self-satisfaction. And it's really hard to do that when you're always trying to beat your competition to this achievement or that achievement.
1: Uh, You brought up small children, Ryan, in Europe when you were based in London and now you're back in the States. Do you notice different aspirations, different Levels of paranoia, different angsts.
0: Uh, you know, there are different flavors of ambition and uh, and worry and anxiety. I, I think probably there is a, a sort of a correlation between the bigger and, and richer a city and and how much parents obsess about this. And so I would I would say that Londoners maybe are a bit crazier uh, with their children than people here in Washington. But really, it's quite similar. I mean, everyone is obsessed about their future prospects, about developing all aspects of their children so they can have the perfect college application. And across the rich world, and particularly in the big cities where elite professionals gather and and where kind of salaries have been soaring, and we see these trends. And I'm not sure that I see it going away.
1: That's interesting. I think we need to have someone around who is pushier than us. And I think one of the reasons people love those stories, if they're Europeans, they go to America and find people queuing up outside some preschool is that they can go back and feel that they're being reasonably relaxed themselves. Barbara, how obligatory, if you like, is a certain level of pushiness now becoming? How much is the law underwriting the kind of trend that you've been exploring in this report, I think that Utah recently passed a free-range parenting law protecting parents who let their children play unaccompanied. There's good libertarian red meat for you.
2: Well, that's a very interesting point. I've actually seen the opposite sorts of reports where parents have been prosecuted for letting their children play unsupervised. Yes, I was more familiar it, with it, that. It, it used to be absolutely standard, you know, that the child of 10 perhaps could play in the park by itself with its mates. But I've seen actually reports in the States, particularly of people getting warnings or, or even potential jail sentences for uh, allowing their kids to roam around like that. So it's quite a difficult situation for a parent. But I've seen some opinions from sort of academics who, who know quite a lot about the subject, who say that actually, you know, all this pushiness will make a difference at the margin, but these children... That are being pushed so much are already quite privileged and they will probably do perfectly well. What they're losing in this process is that um, they, they can let their imaginations run free when they don't get pushed every second of the day. And that is missing a little bit. And there's even been some suggestion I've seen that this phenomenon of snowflakes of students at university who are terribly sensitive to any adverse opinion, something that they don't agree with, that is perhaps a corollary of this very intensive parenting, which also means that the parents are cocooning the children while this is going on to ensure that they will um, have as good an academic result as they possibly can. They will take everything else off them, and that cocooning is actually quite bad for them, so children would be less resilient as a result of that.
1: We always get a lively response from our audience when the word snowflake is used on these podcasts. (laughs) Some people feel very, very strongly that it doesn't describe them. So you can you can let us know whether you identify there with with what Barbara observes. Ryan, how much do we think that this desire to be a very assertive parent and to yield results is about us as opposed to being about the child as part of a lifestyle, a package?
0: Well it's an interesting question and I, I think it probably is playing a pretty big role there. Professional adults now are quite quite aware of the image they present to society. You know, they want their their cabinets to have the right distressed wood and they want to have the right car parked out front and they want to be able to put all of this on Instagram. And and to some extent, a high achieving child fits that bill. You know, when you sit down for, for tea or, or whatever with your friends, you want to be able to say, oh, well, my six-year-old has just finished her second novel and my my four-year-old has built a robot. And then someone else will try to top that. And so I think that we like to tell ourselves we're doing this completely selflessly. But in some ways, it's probably a comforting fiction. And, and, uh, and maybe if we relaxed a little bit as parents, um, the children would be all right as
1: I think you're right. And I think the flip side of that is if you've ever had one of those calls or emails where you then have to turn up at school and account for the fact that Junior didn't turn in his tests on time or hasn't been doing what he should, it's very hard to get away from the sense that it's a bit of a judgment on you and that it's something about you as opposed to being about the well-being of someone else. And that might be one reason why the tide is beginning to turn away from Hot housing, at least academically, for some wealthy families, with a, a bit of a spike upwards in the choice of alternative education. I think Jeff Bezos in September announced two billion for Montessori-inspired free preschooling for low-income families. Is that a trend or an indulgence, Ryan?
0: It may be a trend. I, I mean, sort of based on my own experience. I think you see parents almost asking each other for permission, tentatively saying, "Would it be okay if we?" You know, chilled out a little bit. Uh, I've had conversations with lots of parents in the neighborhood about whether it would be okay if we let our kids kind of roam around a bit unsupervised, partly to make sure that they don't call the, the police and say, you know, how dare these kids run around without you know, supervision, But but partly because we want to make sure that we're not being, you know, we're going to be judging each other. And so I think There's a recognition in a lot of ways that there are some pernicious side effects and that perhaps we could do this in a way that would be good for the mental health of the children and the parents, that might be good for equity across society. And I think that would be a really positive thing if it did turn into a trend. To
1: say nothing of the fact that E.T. could never have worked as a film if they'd all had to be home on time. (laughs) Barbara, you have parented yourself in, in different times. over. You have grown up children, I think.
2: I have grown up children, yes.
1: And knowing what you know now, would you be more or less pushy?
2: I'm very happy I had my children when I did, and I didn't have to be this pushy. I mean, I think there were some pushy parents around at the time, but nothing like what we see now. And I, I would be violently opposed to having to be this pushy. I don't think everybody does it now, but it's just a lot more common.
1: Ryan, I've got to ask, you pushy parent?
0: I'm more pushy than I'd like to be. So it's just I find my, I catch myself saying, I need to be less pushy. I'm working on it. It's a New Year's resolution.
1: I'm an absolutely perfect parent. Absolute. Straight (laughs) up.
0: Well, listeners,
1: let us know what you think. What makes a successful parent? Will hot house children eventually wilt? And which country comes closest to getting the balance right? You can reach us at radio at economist.com or we're on Twitter at Economist Radio, practising our perfect work and family balance. Barbara and Ryan, thank you both very much.
2: Thank you. It's been fun. Thank you.
1: And while you're with us, please take a moment to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We'd love to hear from you. I'm Anne McElvoy, and in London, this is The Economist.